Welcome to the Song of Songs. This is a podcast based on the book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, otherwise known as the Song of Songs. This is your host, John, and in today's episode, we're going to continue our consideration of chapter 1, verse number 4, which reads, Draw me, we will run after thee. Now, we understand this is the woman who is speaking concerning the husband, concerning Solomon, the church, speaking concerning Christ in our spiritual application. So, draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. And we're going to break this verse down into three different sections. It's the hope anyway. We've already covered one section. The first bit of the verse saying, draw me, we will run after thee. The section that I want to focus on today is just that next little phrase, the king hath brought me into his chambers, because there's a lot of doctrinal and just spiritual truth that we can gather and glean, not just from this, but from the rest of scripture as well. And uh, we'll make some of those discoveries as we go along. And then the final uh, section of this verse is really the greatest chunk of this verse, but it's covering a few things that we've already discussed somewhat in previous episodes. So for today, the king hath brought me into his chambers. Now, uh, this is the same same thing today uh, as it as it was back then. But back then, it was accentuated somewhat that whenever you had a house or a palace or something like that, uh, you you had kind of an outer court. You had an outer part portion of that house where visitors and outsiders might have been welcome. Uh, then you had an inner kind of chamber where only those who really knew you really uh, were welcomed into your home as family, as really close friends. Only those kinds of people could be there. And and then there was an innermost place. It's like to say, you know, there's a living room in your house, probably. I mean, it, most of us have a living room or a dining area or something like that. And uh, you might, if you're hospitable, you might open your home up to uh, to friends, to family, maybe even to neighbors, to uh, to folks that you may not know very well, visitors from church or whatever the case may be. You you invite them into your home, you invite them into the, and they, they spend the, the afternoon or whatever in the living room, in the dining room, and you've got that section of the house that is kind of open for everybody, but you don't really necessarily invite just everybody and anybody to come into your bedroom, right? That's the idea that's being uh, given here in this, this phrase, the king hath brought me into his chambers. His chambers is his innermost sanctum. It's, it's the place that, uh, you know, there's no real servants, you know, obviously the king had servants everywhere and he had protectors everywhere. Those are things that even we see represented in the text of the Song of Solomon that we'll discuss many, many months down the road when we get there. But the king has, you know, guardsmen and all of these different folks who are employed by him. Uh, but this is a place that is intimate. This is a place that is special. And in the context of our relationship with Christ, obviously we should desire an intimacy with Christ uh, to get to know him in a way that uh, the outsiders don't really know him. I find it fascinating, and we'll discuss this a little bit more in a couple of weeks whenever we uh, come to uh, the phrase, O daughters of Jerusalem, and who were the daughters of Jerusalem? And, and I'll go ahead and give you my two cents on that right now. 
that I think the daughters of Jerusalem were, were people, they were Israelites, they were people who were in Jerusalem, they were people who were acquainted with the king but did not know him intimately, did not know him in the kind of way that the bride here, the uh, the dove, is what uh, an endearing term that the beloved uses to speak about his his wife. Um, this, they don't know him in the same capacity that she knows him. And, and that should be the desire of the Christian. I want to have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And we talk about that. Those are, uh, those are phrases and, and hit words that, that we use quite a bit about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But there's something special here about this principle of the inner chambers. The king hath brought me into his chambers. This is not a place that you could just waltz, waltz into. You have to be invited in. It has to be uh, a consensual type of deal. Uh, so this is not, you know, the bride is forcing herself in, and this is not uh, the uh, spouse, the the king is forcing her to come into this place of intimacy with him. This is a consensual thing, and our relationship with Christ is going to be a consensual thing as well. Yes, we know uh, from the last episode, uh, draw me, and that term has a more aggressive feel to it than we may be used to uh, here in the United States of talking about how the Lord draws us and, and, and works on our heart. We talk about it as a wooing, and though that is true, he does woo us. At the same time, the word draw, it, it gives you the picture of drawing someone up out of a well, out of or something out of a well, drawing water up out of a well, drawing someone up out of the pit. That was the first mention of the term draw, uh, and we could discuss that in the last episode. And so this is a little bit more aggressive. It's the, uh, the love of Christ constraineth us. I didn't even get into it. I didn't even touch it. It was in my notes uh, to talk about in the last episode, but... It's the same thing being presented in John chapter number six, where Jesus says that no man can come unto me except the Father draw him. Uh, but then at the same time, you know, some folks focus on that and say, focus entirely rather on that and say, you know, you know God has to draw us. And that's true. God has to draw us. But then there there is a sense of uh, the consensual nature of this relationship that we have to be willing and when he begins to draw us, when he begins to work on us, when he begins to uh, show us these things according to the scriptures about our sin and about his righteousness and about judgment, you know, right, that's what the Holy Spirit comes to reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. When God does that, it, I mean, it, it becomes aggressive. He begins to show you these things and begins to try to actively draw you to himself, uh, but we can get stiff-necked about these things and we can harden our heart towards the things of God. And so in John chapter number six, you know, we, we can focus on, you know, no man can come to the father, or come unto me except the father draw him. But then we, Jesus turns right around and says, and all that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And and he leaves with us uh, the, the clear picture that it has to be consensual, that God is not, you know, um, forcing us, making us, you know, understand he is sovereign and all of that. And we can have long conversations about that. But you see a balance here and a balance that a lot of times we don't really see in our churches. You have people who are either for or against, but the scripture talks about this and says, especially in the context of our text, you know, draw me. You've got that. It's it's aggressive. It's active, rather, um, that that God has, you know, tied us up and He's He's drawing us to Himself. 
But then the next phrase is, we will run after thee. And when the Lord begins to do that work in our heart, if we are willing and receptive to him, then we have to make that decision whether or not, you know, when we hear the sound of the trumpet, uh, the watchman that blows, uh, This is the book of Ezekiel is what I'm referring to, that uh, God tells the prophet, you know, if, if there's a watchman that's set up and he sees danger coming and he blows the trumpet and people don't pay attention to it, then, you know, the watchman has uh, acquitted himself of responsibility of innocent blood. But everybody that dies by the sword, if they heard the sound of the watchman, if they heard the sound of the trumpet and didn't do anything to prepare, then their blood was on their own head. They had nobody to blame but themselves. And so it's our responsibility to, yeah, sound the trumpet, sound the alarm, but it's also our responsibility to when we hear that sound, when we hear the word of God being preached, when we see and perceive that the Holy Spirit is beginning to do a work in our lives, it is our responsibility to either let him, allow him, nurture those things, you know, continue to expose ourselves to the word of God. That would be a good way of receiving him. Um, when God begins to convict us, we could either run away from that or we could run back to the scriptures and say, Lord, continue to teach me, continue to reprove me. You know, we've got a choice that we have to make. And she makes this choice. She says, draw me, we will run after thee. And the result of this is that the king hath brought me into his chambers. He's brought me into a place of intimacy. He's brought me into a place of a personal relationship with him. The clearest idea or the clearest way that we can illustrate this inner chambers in scripture is talking about the temple or talking about the tabernacle. They were both structured, laid out in the same way, Uh, much like how I referred to our houses uh, about having a place that's kind of welcome for everybody, but then there's an inner place that you don't necessarily just welcome anybody into. Well, especially in the context of the temple, uh, you had an outer outer uh, court um, that you know anybody could really really come out to. Especially, this was accentuated in in. Uh, the time of the New Testament. You had even a Gentile's court, you had a women's court, then you had that, that outer court where the men could come, and then you had an inner inner place, and then you know you, you, you had the where you had the temple itself, and the temple was, was called the holy place, but then there was a place within the temple that was called the holy place. This is the holy of holies is what we would we would call it. And this is the place, the holiest place was where uh, the the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony was was at. And this was the place where only only the high priest could come once a year and, and that had to had to happen a very specific way. It had to had to he had to come uh, with a blood sacrifice or else God would reject the offering and, and the presence of God, the holiness of God is lethal if we come with sin in our life, if we don't if we don't have the blood of Christ covering us of course, we, we know that the blood of bulls and rams and goats, it couldn't take away their sin. It couldn't acquit them. All of that was just a shadow and a type of, of Christ and his blood that he shed for us. And we see that uh, for us clearly given in, in the New Testament scriptures. And in Romans chapter number, uh, chapter number four, or rather it's chapter number three, rather, the scripture says concerning Christ, uh, whom God hath set forth, to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And I, I pulled that verse kind of out of its context. And I pulled that verse out of its context because there's a word in there that's very important. The word propitiation. It's only found three times in the New Testament. 
there are two different Greek words that are used to translate, uh, that are translated as propitiation. Uh, the word that is, they're both very similar. They both come from the, the same kind of root. Um, they're not, so they're not entirely different words, but just the way that they're used and whatnot. Uh, and in this particular case, this word, this uh, type, this this fashion of this particular word is found once else in the scriptures, in the New Testament, but it's not translated there as propitiation. It's translated there as something else entirely, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the scripture says here, Romans 3.25, that, that God has set Christ forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So what is propitiation? It's a big word uh, that oftentimes we don't take the time to fully understand or fully uh, fully teach and communicate what it means. A propitiation is, is a sacrifice or an offering or a deed or a token, something that pleases. The emphasis is on pleasing specifically a deity. Okay, We're speaking in the general sense of the term. Propitiation is not just a term that is, uh, that is exclusive to, to Christian doctrine, to, to Christian uh, belief, which is true doctrine and, and true faith. But anyway, the term propitiation means, you know, the, the thing that pleases a deity, specifically concerning sin uh, and making an atonement for sin. And, and this is what Jesus Christ is for us. First uh, John tells us that he is a propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, that he is the sacrifice, the thing that pleases God uh, for our sins on our behalf. And so the word here, though, is uh, is used in another passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter number 9. The word that's translated as propitiation is also used in Hebrews chapter number 9, and it's speaking about the temple. Okay, so we're bringing this full circle back to what I'm trying to communicate, what we're trying to, to learn and discern about the king hath brought me into his chambers and trying to contrast that with the holiest place, the holy of holies within the temple. Okay, so um, the scripture tells us uh, in verse number three of Hebrews nine, he, he's talking about the author's talking about the temple and the tabernacle and the, the Old Testament uh, sacrificial rites and all of those different things. And he says after the second veil, and he's talking about the way that the temple is structured, the tabernacle is structured. Um, he says that after the second veil, which is talking about um, the the holiest place, so you had one veil, one place of separation, and then you had a second place of separation, a big veil that um, when Christ died, it was rent from top to bottom. It was torn from top to bottom, and that illustrates the point we're about to make. But he says, after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So he's saying in this holiest place, there was a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. And within the Ark of the Covenant, there was this golden uh, bowl pot that had manna in it. And it also had Aaron's rod in it. Uh, and it also had the tables of the covenant. So this is the law of God that came from God on Mount Sinai to God's people through Moses that, that God pinned with his own finger. Okay. Um, so that is in the holiest of all. And it says over it, over the Ark of the Covenant, verse number five, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. 
So the the Ark of the Covenant was a box uh, that was made of a very specific type of wood. It was overlaid with gold. Everything was according to a very specific set of instructions. And on top of the uh, the ark, the box rather, as a part of the ark of the covenant, ark of the testimony, as the Old Testament calls it, there were two cherubims, two uh, angels, okay, a special type of angels, but two cherubims, and their wings were stretched out towards each other, so they were on opposite sides of the top of the box, and they were facing towards each other, and their wings were outstretched straight in front of them towards each other, and their wings touched together, and where their wings touched together, that's where the uh, the priest would have to come in once a year and he would have to take the blood on the Day of Atonement and he would have to have to pour out that blood of that innocent sacrifice on to the mercy seat. And in the Old Testament, when God is actually giving these instructions, he tells Moses, he says, this is where I'm going to meet with you. And we'll include all of these notes and whatnot in, in the outline, uh, in the notes, as when we get around to uploading that Um but uh, that's back in the book of Exodus. God says, this is where I'm going to deal with you, where the angels' wings touch each other. And here, in verse number 5 of Hebrews 9, he says, over it, over the box, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat. And the word mercy seat is that same Greek word that's translated in Romans as propitiation okay so jesus christ is the propitiation he is the propitiation for our sins no man can please god without faith in jesus christ and what we mean by faith in jesus christ is not ooey gooey good feeling vibes that everything's going to work out yes we do know that all things work together for good to them that love god and them that are the called according to his purpose and what is that purpose? He goes on in the next verses, talks about how that we were, you know, uh, whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, that's the purpose that God has called us to, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so faith in Christ is not just saying, well, I believe that, you know, everything's going to work out. It is faith, confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in him alone. You don't have any confidence in yourself anymore. You don't have any confidence in your abilities. You don't have any confidence in your family, your friends, your connections, your money, your wealth, your resources. You don't have any connection or any confidence, rather, in in governmental systems or the worldly systems or anything like that. We pray for our elder or we pray for our leaders and those that are in response are in authority over us as as messengers of God. And and I understand the Bible doctrine on all that, but I don't trust them. I don't trust them with my soul. I don't trust them with my salvation. I don't trust them with my happiness. I don't trust them with, with anything, okay? I, I pray for them. I trust Jesus Christ. I respect my pastor. I respect him as a steward and a minister of the gospel and of the word of God. I respect him. And to a certain degree, I trust him to deliver Bible doctrine, but he's fallible. Jesus Christ, I I faith him. I trust him. You're, the term faith, the word faith, is an action word. It It is literally, it is an action word. So to say I have faith in him, is it is to say I am faithing him. I am trusting him. I am placing my faith in him. So Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins. 
The propitiation, the term propitiation is synonymous with the term of the mercy seat. The place where God deals with us. And so, we find here, going back to our text in Song of Solomon 1, we find that she is saying, The king hath brought me into his inter, inner chambers. He's brought me into the most intimate place that he could have brought me. How does he do that? In the context of our relationship with God, in the context of Christ in the church, how does God bring us into a place of intimacy with him? if it is not through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the mercy seat. He is the place where God deals with us, where our sins are forgiven. Whereas uh, the Old Testament author in the Psalms say that, you know, mercy and truth have kissed each other. Uh, and, and, and John talks about it, and, and we have seen his fullness, and of his fullness received, you know, uh, grace for grace. We, we, we've seen him. Grace and truth, and, and, and all of these things are met together in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the place where God deals with us. That's the place where perfect justice is seen, where sin is, is eternally punished and judged and condemned on the person of Jesus Christ. And it's also the place where love is seen. It is the place where, where God's love for sinners is seen because Jesus Christ took upon himself the sins of the whole world that, that, and, and of me individually, my sins, personally. He bore in his own body. He became a curse for me. So if I am going to enter into a place of intimacy with God, it has to be through Jesus. And we re-emphasize the point all over again that if your relationship or your religion, rather, if your statement of beliefs, your doctrine, your ethical, you know, morality, whatever you want to call it, if your church attendance, your, your, your religious devotions, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, all those different things, if the end goal of that, if what you want to accomplish out of that is anything less than wanting to know the person of Jesus Christ and honor him and serve him, then you've missed it. God doesn't just want to make a place for us. We focus on that in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. That is a blessed truth. I'm thankful that he does. I'm thankful that he has a place prepared for me. But you know what the point is? The point is out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus, that where I am, there you may be also. The whole point of him going to prepare a place for us is so that we could have a place with him. With him. So my friend, if you read the Bible, as you read the Bible, as you study, as you pray, as you seek after the Lord, you're listening to a, a podcast on Song of Solomon, okay? So there, there's obviously some kind of desire or interest, at least in spiritual things. If you miss Jesus, you miss everything. What good is a marriage if there is no place of personal, private communication and in intimacy. I'm not just talking about, you know, the physical, what we would consider a physical act of intimacy. I'm talking about getting to know that person. What point is there? 
What point is there in church attendance if you don't know the God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know him? It's pointless. All of our social clubs and all of our doings, it's all pointless if we miss him. So please, in all your getting, get wisdom. Get him. That was a reference to the book of Proverbs and all your wisdom get and all your get you know your your gaining get wisdom and, and and Jesus Christ is likened to as the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs. So as we conclude our study here today, it, it hardly feels like a study. We've we've barely made any progress at all, but I think we've done some good here to reemphasize the fact that it's all about Jesus. Okay, and so the place where we are to be aspiring to be the place where we want to be ought to be where Jesus is the king hath brought me into his chambers yeah there are servants and there are people who are who who are doing things for him and there are people that are you know doing his bidding but i want to be the one that he invites into a place of intimacy i want to be the one who he says you know what let me let me just talk with you privately can you imagine what that was like? The end, of, the the final words in 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 the book of John, the Gospel of John. You know, Jesus tells Simon Peter, he says, "I want you to come. I want to talk with you for a little while." And we get a little bit of that conversation, but we don't get the entire thing. You know why? Because what we get is what John could overhear. They go off. G- Jesus and Peter, they go off and they're talking to each other. We don't have any idea what they were saying. You want to know something even more special? Think about this. Okay, I thought I was going to finish up here, but I'm going to give you one more thing. Simon Peter denied Jesus three times. And a lot of times that passage of scripture at the end of John, people say, well, that's that's Jesus trying to reconcile Peter to himself and trying to help him get get over his mistakes. I don't believe so. I think that was Jesus trying to prepare Simon Peter for what he had for him to do after Jesus ascended into heaven. I believe Jesus had already had his conversation with Simon Peter to comfort him and to extend forgiveness to him personally. Because the scripture tells us that when uh, the disciples came, or the, the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, we remember this, this is in the book of Luke, when the disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus, when they realized that it was Jesus, they ran and they found the apostles. They found the, the 12 disciples, or rather 11 disciples. Really rather 10 disciples because Thomas wasn't there. Anyway, um, and what was it that they said? They said that the Lord is risen and has appeared unto Simon. That's what he told that they told them. It said in Luke, this is Luke chapter 24 and verse number 34, that they're saying, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. Now we could guess as to what Simon they were talking about. Simon was kind of a common name, right? This is, this is, this is the, the night, the day, the first day, the day of the resurrection, right? And he's already appeared to Simon and he appeared to him. How did, in what order did he appear to him? Well, if only the scriptures would tell us, you know, some 
uh, chronological line of events of, of who Jesus saw at, at what time. Oh, wait, hang on a second. The scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas. Now that's the name Jesus gave to Simon Peter. He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. Then of the twelve. You know what I want after I failed? After I've promised God, you know, like Simon Peter promised God, says, I'm never going to betray you. I'll never deny you. I'll go with you all the way to the grave. I'll go with you all the way to death. And then he failed. He made such a boastful statement, and then he failed. And I do that. I, I do really dumb stuff like Simon Peter. What do I want? Whenever I feel like I have fallen to the place where God could no longer love me or want me or use me, you know what I want? I want Jesus Christ to find me. To call me aside by himself. And to just talk with me. To just bring me into his inner chambers. To bring me into his chambers and just be my brother be my savior yes there's reference to this be my god my king my master my savior my lord but also to be my brother and to be my friend that's that's what we get in jesus we get somewhat much more than a god to serve we get someone to be close to a friend to tell our troubles somebody to aspire to Somebody to cry with, to laugh with. We get all of those things and more in the person of Jesus Christ. So in all of your getting, make sure you don't lose him. Make sure you don't miss out on him. Make sure you get Jesus. And the only way you can get Jesus is by faith, trusting in what he has done for you, by faith in his blood. Well, I think that might be as good a place as any to quit. And uh, especially considering that I told you I was going to quit eight minutes ago, but there you go. Um, until next time, uh, we're going to look at uh, Song of Solomon 1, verse number 4, continue on through that. Maybe even finish it, who knows. Uh, but until next time, may God bless you, keep you in his word, and most of all, may Jesus Christ be praised. And may you find a sweet solace in his inner chamber.